Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jim R. Today is episode 172 and we're going to be interviewing Dee. How are you doing, Dee? I'm okay. Thanks, Jim. How are you I'm, doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. I'm excited to do this. Thanks. So let's get started. You said you listened to maybe a few of my podcasts. So I don't know if you noticed, my first question to everybody is, tell me about your childhood. Yes, I do know that. And I thought about that. Uh, you know, my childhood was pretty good, actually, uh, in a lot of ways. You know, my parents were extremely young when they had me. Uh, my mother was 16, so still in high school. And I bring that up only because I learned to have a whole lot of compassion for kids raising kids. <laughs> uh, you know, that shouldn't happen. Uh, they did the best they could. And they made a lot of mistakes. And so did I. And I was in my 20s. And so will my son. And he's in his 40s. So it doesn't really matter what age you are when you have children. You're going to screw things up. Um, I grew up in Michigan in Midwest and was a bit of not only a smart aleck, but a bit of a protege. So I was playing piano when I was three. I was you know, reading by the time I was three. I was in school. I They wanted to skip me a couple of grades. My mother said no. You know, she didn't think that'd be good for me emotionally. And I think she was right. So all went along really well until I probably hit about 12. And there were a couple of things that happened. One was a sexual assault and the other one was having siblings suddenly in the picture and losing that connection with, in particular, my mother. And I found drugs of all sorts um, was, and it helped. Was it somebody close to you that assaulted you? No. No, this was more unusual in that it was a stranger assault, at least the first time. There's been many assaults through the years. And, and the rest of them would be in the date rape kind of categories. But this one was not. This was a stranger. Yeah, believe it or not, that's actually unusual here. Like you said, I've done a lot of interviews and most of the times it's somebody that they knew. Yeah. It's an area study for me. So I know that. Yeah. Which I don't know if that helps or not. But uh, it certainly goes against the paradigm that we learn and that it's, you know, be careful of strangers. And it's like, no, be careful of the people you know. <laughs> so, yeah. I yeah, mean, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. So things occurred. I wound up um, in and out of therapist's office as my parents discovered that I was using drugs. And what age and again were you first? You 12. Were 12? Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, which in those days was young. Today, it's not so much, again, but it was then. And well, I still think that's incredibly young, you know, even today, yeah. by today's standards. I mean, I would think so, too. But I'm just saying, if we look at statistics, yeah. it's not that unusual at this point, sort of 12, 13, 14 year old. Um, and obviously, the younger you start, the harder it is on you and the more likely you are to use for a longer period of time. Uh, which was my trajectory as well. So uh, I wound up having a legal battle with my parents um, and I won. So I was legally emancipated when I was 15, I think, and left home. 
I did manage to go back for a year because I realized I wasn't going to graduate high school. It was a little difficult to try to work to pay for an apartment or a room somewhere and go to school and everything. Why did you leave? Why did you leave home? Why did you get emancipated? Um, I discovered that my family had decided that they were going to listen to a psychiatrist that had seen me once and decided that or diagnosed me as a schizophrenic nymphomaniac. Thank you, DSM-3, I think. Hmm. And I freaked out. I got angry. I got scared. Um, they had a place they were going to send me to, an institution. So were you sexually active at 12? Why did they think you were an nymphomaniac? I I did have a lot of sex, yeah. Okay. Yeah, sex and love gets very complicated. Uh, you know, my own history is in menstruating early. So my hormones kicked in long before I was emotionally capable of handling that. And that was not a conversation in 1960, <laughs> what would that be? 1967, 68, somewhere in there that mothers in general were having with their daughters. So there was no conversation around what that might look like. Yeah. Um, not that it's much different today, particularly for girls. And you know, when you get hit with a flood of hormones, it changes your body and it, your mind is part of your body. It's not something that you can do anything about. It helps if you know what's going on then at least you can make sense of it or have someone to talk about it to. I had none of that. And so I acted out a lot. So that was part of it. Part of it was acting out because I was looking for love because I had lost the connection with my mother in particular, uh, again, who was raising two other kids at that point. But I would be in the neurodiverse category today. So I know the other thing was that I was very attached to my mother and more attached than probably uh, your typical kid would be. And so that break was really traumatic on me. And so that's what happened. How was your social life growing up? I was a loner. Uh, I was seen as a teacher's pet and too, too smart. Nobody really wanted to hang out with me. I was terrible at sports, so that wasn't going to happen. You know, I'd rather be in playing the piano, uh, classically trained. And, you know, I'd rather be reading, playing the piano, doing things that were socially independent and also far more grown up. I dealt better with adults than I did with kids my own age. I was intimidated by them. Yeah, I think we all want to belong and be popular to some degree. And yeah. I certainly crave that. And that's part of the reason I started using chemicals as well. Using what? Chemicals, substances. Chemicals. Yeah, because I wanted to have friends. I decided that I would do anything to have some of that popularity. And in the late 60s, early 70s, that was the thing. I don't know that it's that different in some places today. So did you graduate high school? Yes, I did. I graduated on time. Um, I was accepted at the University of Michigan. I got down there for uh, orientation and changed my mind. 
<laughs> and I had alumni back to my great-grandfather there, so that didn't go over well either. Um, I got a scholarship to go to a private school in Texas, so I went there. And from there, I met my first husband and did not finish college at that point. I like to say I took the scenic route to get to California, where I am now, and a couple of husbands later. And you know, finally got out here. And when I married for the third time was when I went into uh, treatment, into formal treatment. So I went into a hospital-based program that's still here, Oakland, California, that I then went to work at. Just going back a little bit, I'm just thinking about myself. You must, were you terrified when you were 15? Because I'm just thinking about my 15-year-old self trying to live on my own and make it. In, you know, I have, you know, it's still a fight today to everyone, you know, it's, it's rough yeah. for everyone in life. You know, it's it's a, a reasonable question. And one I've asked myself, Jim, and to be honest, I can't remember a lot about that time period. I clearly dissociated. That was one of the ways for me to cope with it. Uh, and so I certainly acted as if I wasn't, but I had to be on some level. Yeah, I really, I mean, I wasn't completely alone. I did have some good friends. And I'm grateful that I had some, both adults and people my own age that kind of stepped in and helped out. But yeah, I mean, I must have been. What were you doing to um, support yourself? Uh, what was I doing? I was working, I worked for a dentist at one okay. point. <clears throat> um, we had dentists in my family, so I was familiar with the basics of dental assisting back in those days. So I did some of that. I did the books for somebody. I was a short order cook and I'm not a great cook, but whatever. I did that for a while. I did some babysitting. I sort of did whatever needed to happen. And then when I turned 18, that was the drinking age in those days. Um, I went to work for the bar that I used to go to which obviously meant that I had had a fake ID for at least a year or two previous <laughs> and was yeah. going in. Yeah. So how was your drug use? I, you know, when you graduated high school, what was it at that point? And what were you using mainly? I guess that would be a good question as well. Yeah. I, it started out with, as everyone pretty much does with just weed, we called it in those days or pot. And, um, which I wasn't very hip. I just didn't like it. I didn't. Later, I discovered that I'm one of those that it gives panic attacks. So I'm not a good candidate for that, unfortunately, or I would be using that for my pain. I've tried. Um, and alcohol was always there. You know, that was something that was, and those were the days of some really bad alcohol, too. I mean, Boone's Farm. You know, apple wine. Oh, God, there's just nothing worse to get a hangover or get sick on. <laughs> so those were the primaries. And then it started with things like we had the old, they were called crosstops. And it was speed, but in a pill form. And it literally had a hash mark on the top, which is how it got its nickname. And you would buy them rolled up in tin foil in a log. It's kind of what it looked like. Um 
like sweet tarts, you know, and that is what everybody used. You know, um, a it was good for weight loss, and being a female of that generation, we all thought we were fat and needed to lose weight. Uh, it also was great for studies. It was great for. I was still a, a very good student during the day, and then I would go out and party at night. So I needed to have something to be able to do these two worlds and manage, and that helped. We also had a lot of hallucinogenic that we used. Um, today called psychedelics. And those I enjoyed a, a lot. And those were never a problem. I didn't use them a lot. I think I used them for a year or two more than I usually did. It was kind of an experiment to see if you could play the flute and be under the influence of LSD. Um, didn't work out well, by the way, but it was, it was a lot of fun in that time. But that was sort of the, the extent of it. You know, a lot of hash, a lot of hash oil. What else did we have? We had mescaline in those days, you know, that sort of stuff. Uh, and I was the garbage pet. I would take whatever was available. If you wanted to know what something was going to do to somebody, I was always volunteering, saying, I'll take it. You watch me. That'll tell you if it's safe and what it's going to do. So already there was a part of me that had figured out I wasn't very valuable. Why do you think I was, that is? I, again, you know, attachment is a big thing. And when you detach from people, from your caretakers, in whatever form that is, they could die, it could be um, a traumatic, other kind of traumatic event that occurs, it could be that you know, your parents are angry with you and withhold love and affection. And there's a lot of different ways. But this is very typical, particularly in addiction, um, that we have some sort of lack of attachment. And that what that leads to is us feeling empty. And because when you're a kid, you internalize everything because we don't understand, we don't have the comprehension to see our place in the world, if you will, that's around us. So it must be me. I'm the screw up. So if I'm the screw up and I can't find love in any of the right places, to badly quote an old song, then I'm going to turn to substances that at least numb me out and allow me to forget and allow me and my body to just calm down. So it's a form of regulation that also occurs. So in a lot of ways, the irony is that the drugs that we use do an awful lot of positive things. I mean, there's reasons that we all use drugs. Uncovering some of those reasons are really important if you're going to stop or slow down, use drugs in a more healthy way. And when I say drugs, I mean everything, alcohol, tobacco, you know, put whatever you want in that category. So having that disconnection, you know, yeah. yeah, I was just watching Dr. Gabor Mate. Mm -hmm. Gabor? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he sounds very much like what a lot of the stuff you were saying about attachment issues and things like that. Do you think, because I was also thinking about it during his uh, lecture I was listening to. Mm -hmm. Do you think that is a reason that a lot of us addicts have codependency issues? 
because that's one thing I've noticed because I we do yeah. group meetings and yeah I've just met so many people and a lot of us have co it was an amazing amount have codependency issues as well well I don't know I'm not a big believer in codependency as a label uh, but we have relationship issues yes I'll just put it that way in general and the biggest relationship we have a problem with is ourselves yeah now that's the first relationship and if you aren't in relationship in a healthy way with yourself it's then pretty damn difficult to be in a healthy relationship with anybody else all right because you don't know what you need or what you want you don't have what you you know what can you give to somebody else if you're depleted or if you feel like I did that you're not worthy of love and true affection. Yeah. And I see that all the time in my own clients over the years. Yeah. It's a tough one. Yeah. Like I said, I've just noticed a lot of people have that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I totally agree with you. Yeah. yeah. Um. So what were you doing in like your early 20s? So you went to college, you graduated. I'm I did. Assuming. Well, I, I did not graduate the first time. Yeah, you were saying. From Texas. Yep. Came out to California. I was working in radio, got offered a job out here. Uh, gratefully. So I got out of Dodge, um, which my ex-husband was very grateful for. <laughs> came out here and came to San Francisco in the late 70s. <clears throat> excuse me and wound up leaving the job in radio going back to work in nightclubs um, which I was good at and enjoyed because I got to be around people and I got to be able to drink and use other things and not have to worry about it very much so that took care of that part um I also got pregnant which I wasn't supposed to be able to do and wound up having my son, who's now 43. Uh, gosh, nearly 44 now. My God. And highly successful. Thank goodness. Uh, has not had the, the same journey that I've had and many of us have. And I became a single mom uh, for many years. And when I got married for the last time in 88, which was the same year that I went to treatment, so I did everything wrong. <laughs> I had major surgery, got married, and went to treatment. <laughs> and treatment was first. <laughs> uh, but that also allowed me the ability to go back to school, which I did. Uh, so I went to San Francisco State University, which I passed all the time and really wanted to go to school there. Found that I absolutely loved the human sex department, which doesn't seem like a, a far cry in some ways from part of my life. It really helped me to come to terms with my sexuality, with my past sexual experiences, kind of put a container and some boundaries around that for me to understand it better. And I also did a degree in psychology. Um, at that point, I was working in treatment and had been for a few years. And so from there, I decided to get a master's. Um, I was encouraged to do that by a couple of mentors that I had that also worked in treatment. We didn't in those days have a lot of women who were working in treatment who were also in recovery and had an education. 
you know, that. And so I was told, go do that. Uh, um, and I did. And I never looked back. So you enjoy psychology? I do. I do. Uh, my master's is in health counseling. Okay. And so I don't it, just work in addiction per se, but that is really what I do. Um, and I work as a coach and as a counselor and have done that for you know three and a half decades now, nearly. Um, I find it fascinating. Human behavior to me is fascinating. Even my own behavior can be fascinating. And so I'll look at some of my behaviors and laugh and say, you know, you're an expert in motivation and in behavior change. And here you are doing the same thing over and over again. And you can't get out of your own rut. Isn't that fascinating? Whereas in the past, it would have been what's wrong with you? You How you can't be an expert and behave that way. You better hide that from anyone. Or they won't think that you're capable and competent. And now it's like, no, you know, we're all human. Although my clients and my students are still always surprised when I say, yeah, you know, I'm having panic attacks too. You know, prices are up and we don't know what's happening in the world and all these things are going on. Yeah, I live in this world. Uh, It's just that I recognize it better. And I have some tools that maybe they don't that I could tap into. Not that I always do, because, again, I'm human. So going back again, when you were going back to school and you were Mm -hmm. finishing up everything, Mm -hmm. what was your drug and alcohol use like? Uh, When I went back to school, my drug use had settled into alcohol and cocaine. And it was cocaine that took me to my knees. Uh, Again, gratefully, I I give my ex a lot of credit for not only hanging in with me, but also paying for my treatment, because otherwise I certainly couldn't have done that. Uh, And I do appreciate that. And that became my life, you know, recovery in the traditional sense. I was a 12-step baby Um, my sponsor, who is also on my master's committee, his story is in the big book of AA. His sponsor was Bill W. So uh, all of that experience led me to some amazing places, you know, um, emotionally and psychologically, if you will, and just stories that I got to hear, which I talked a little bit about in my book that I wrote. Um, I found that I could manage my drug use to a certain degree. I had gotten it down to about once every other week, (laughs) which was really good for me, I thought. Uh, My ex didn't think so, because as we know, it's not how much you use, even how often you use. It's what happens when you do. Uh, And I was not very capable as a lot of people aren't when they're under the influence of a lot of a stimulant in particular, but then you add the alcohol on top of that. So it became an issue in my family, my nuclear family, if you will. So my ex and my son, and finally it was my son who just off the cuff sitting in the backseat of the car 
said, hey, mom, are you still using cocaine? And he was eight. And that got my attention. It wasn't what took me to treatment, but it started me. You know, it's like having a balloon that you start poke little holes in. You said he was eight? Yeah. And he knew what cocaine was at the time. Well, apparently so. Of course, (laughs) I never used it in front of him. We thought we were hiding it, as we all think we're doing. And our kids know. Oh, they know a lot more than we think they do. Uh, And that really did. That was one of the pieces that really got my attention. He doesn't even remember saying that, of course. Oh, he was eight, but I sure do. And there were, you know, some other lesser big events, but still there were events. There were thoughts of, I always said that I would stop using when I had the right job, when I had the right education, when I had the right husband, when, you know, whatever it was. And I heard a voice that said, okay, so now what's your excuse? You've got the home, you've got the car, you've got the education, you've got the husband. It's now what? And a couple of other things that kind of coalesced. Uh, Apparently, I called a friend that had gone to treatment. I don't remember making the phone call, but she does. And she said, I asked her for help. And so she took care of it. I was a piano teacher in those days. Just kind of like finding out your local librarian is shooting heroin. You know, it just doesn't seem to fit somehow. Uh, Only mine was cocaine. So he took care of calling all of my students um, and letting them know that I needed to be hospitalized for a while. And, you know, um, so I went away for the month. And again, I was really privileged in that I also didn't have to go right back to work when I came out of treatment. I could really just take care of myself for a bit. I mean, I did have to go back to work or I would have lost my business completely, but I could go back in slowly. And I worked part-time anyway, and that's all I did. So I would see a few piano students. I would maybe go to the grocery store. That was all I could handle. And slowly started getting healthier. I was introduced in treatment to better nutrition, um, exercise. That was part of it. And I wound up going back when I worked for the, the same program. I was their exercise coordinator and developed curriculum for, um, in those days, we called a chemical dependency and nutrition and exercise and relapse prevention. I did my master's in relapse prevention. So looking at how we do treatment in this country, which we don't do a very good job of, and looking at nutrition and exercise as supports, and I would definitely add sleep, that <laughs> would be another part. <laughs> a buddy of mine did his PhD on that. <laughs> so having you know these other, we think of as ancillary supports, and I want to say, no, those are primary supports because it is what supports your brain function. And if your brain doesn't have the nutrition and you know the the, the hormones for, through exercise and other things that it needs to function properly, it can't it can't run well. It's kind of like a car. You know, if you put in shitty gas, it's not going to run. If you have a high performance car, so you know that was really interesting to me. 
and I had not thought about that before of those things being important. Gratefully, I had uh, a sponsor you know, who did think all those things were important and would sit in meetings and get into a lot of trouble, but because he had the cred, he could get away with it and you know, tell people they shouldn't be smoking and remind them that good nutrition was really important, particularly for relapse prevention, <laughs> lowering your stress. <laughs> so I was very fortunate to be around these extremely intelligent, um, very well-connected in 12-step folks. When I made the decision to leave 12-step, in fact, and talk to them about it, he and his wife were my longtime sponsors. She had a PhD in human sexuality and was a, a sex therapist, and he was uh, a medical doctor. He was the chair of UCSF's OBGYN department up here. And he was the one who Bill Wilson was his sponsor. And I'll never forget, he said, that's fine, baby. It'll always be there. If you ever need it, come on back. But I didn't have any of the scare tactics, any of the, oh, my God, you know, you're going to drink or use again if you leave. Um, and he reminded me that Bill Wilson wanted people to stop going to meetings. He did not ever see that as a lifetime commitment. Lifetime commitment to your health, absolutely, but not to meetings, unless you wanted to. If you're comfortable there, that's great. And it's okay to leave as well. Because the whole point of recovery was to recover your life. And I like that. So I think I have done a great job of recovering my life. Do you, this is a random question, only yeah. because a lot of people have uh, issues with stimulants. Do you have ADHD? I do. Okay. But I've yeah. been diagnosed with just about everything under the planet. So. Yeah, that was another, me too. I have it as well. Um, that was another thing Gabor Mate mentions. That's why yeah. I was asking is a lot of yeah. people that lean towards the stimulants have, you know, ADHD or ADHD yeah. issues. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, mine is mild. I've never needed to take any medication for it. And frankly, I like to say that I make ADHD work for me. So um, because I have chronic pain and some autoimmune conditions that really zap my energy a lot of times, I've learned when I do have that energy to really turn into that and use it. <laughs> you know, my little mini manic episodes, if you will, and go, yes, okay, let's get some work done. You yeah. know, what are the things I need to do? Um, and again, it's being mindful of it, right? It's being aware of it, knowing what it is, so I don't need to freak out. And knowing it's also going to leave me at some point. So, and that helps me because then I'm mindful of the crash that may come. So I'm not going to let myself get too amped up because I don't want to crash too far either because my body is already crashing from the pain. So how do you deal with it? Well, for me personally, um, yeah. I, I, at the time, I also, when I was using, I did use a lot of Adderall. I snorted yeah. a ton of Adderall. I okay. cocaine. The only yeah. reason I ever stopped cooking is it started really hurting my nose and the come down yeah. was much worse. But there were days I stayed up for, or times I should say, that I stayed up for three days yeah. just snorting Adderall and playing my guitar and playing piano and trying to write <laughs> and read songs. There you go. <laughs> yeah. But I've learned. So right now I also take Stratera uh -huh. to help. I used to take something called Guanquazine, 
Okay. But then I switched back to Stratera because it helps me a little better. Uh-huh. Um, but I do use it when I have somewhat of a manic episode. Mm-hmm. Like you said, I'm aware of it and I mm-hmm. use it resourcefully. I Because mm-hmm. if you take a look, I'll show you later. I write a ton mm-hmm. of articles for the group. I wrote a book that's going to be out soon. So a lot of that, mm-hmm. I know that I was manic during that time. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I focused it on good things. Yeah. Like growing this group and everything was a, was a big part of it. And yeah. Uh, I mean, how I deal with it now is just breathing exercises. I try mm-hmm. to do as much meditating as possible. Believe it or not, that ha- that helps a lot with my focus. Yeah. Um, and just really staying on, like when... When someone mentions something like in conversation mm-hmm. right now, if I want to ask a question, I say it to myself like three times in my head because I have to focus. Uh-huh. Otherwise, I'll zone out and lose track of what I was talking about. <laughs> yeah, I do that too. Uh, and I'll do that in session on occasion. We'll go off on a tangent. Yeah. Uh, part of the reason I take notes because it helps me to get back to it and go, okay, now it's time to get back. Exactly. But, you know, it's okay. Yeah. I think isn't, it's really lovely to feel like you know what's going on though, huh? Yes. You know, to have a name for it, to know it's okay. It doesn't have to run my life, at least for some of us. I appreciate some people's ADHD or whatever they're coping with is much more severe. Uh, there are cases, but most of us can learn some tricks or tools that can be really helpful. Yeah. Oh, I see Kitty now. I saw ears. There she is. He that's Buttercup. She, She's joining oh, us for the interview. You have any questions, Buttercup? I know. And Izzy just came in, so uh, he must he? know that there's a cat. Oh, <laughs> he sensed it. Exactly. You're going to come up and zoom bomb for a minute. Let's see. Let's get you here. Okay. Come on, handsome boy. We'll do this work for a moment. <laughs> there she is. There he is. Oh, what a face this morning. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now you're tangled up in my there you go hey thank you is <laughs> okay so you know I, again for me it's i was lucky that i wasn't on medication and i know i d- did see a lot of folks and still do on occasion uh, young folks seems like it's mostly young men that are diagnosed with adhd as teenagers and wind up on medication. And then unfortunately, people, the, the doctors will stop the medication. And I've always thought that's not necessarily a good idea because then I see too many of those kids and turn to street drugs. Yeah. And it's like, you know, please, especially right now, you know, don't do that because it's really deadly out there. And instead, just stay on whatever medication might be helpful. You know, change the dose, make sure they're doing other things, exercising whatever it is that could be helpful meditation breathing all those things but you know medication is fine it's okay yeah absolutely some people i i've heard some people say well i don't think it's sober well i have a host of mental health issues you know what i mean (laughs) most of us do (laughs) and you know if i was without my medication i'm very different right and it's no good and there's this i think I usually have one right behind me. I don't right now. There's this amazing little pamphlet that's called the AA Member and Medications. Okay. And AA itself says, hey, it's up to you and your doctor. And nobody in a meeting should be telling you anything about a medical condition. Yeah. And I love that. 
Um, and a lot of people perfect. don't know about that pamphlet. Exactly. I know. I've never heard of that. Yeah, they I'm updated it recently, too, to include Narcan and buprenorphine and some other things in there. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, you can find it on their website. Yeah, I have to definitely check that out. Yeah, it's in a PDF now, which is great. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. So, so how are you doing nowadays? How do you keep them sober? Oh, you know, that's a good question, because I don't think much about it. I realize I'm coming up on, it'll be 35 years in January. Wow, that's amazing. And, you know, it's been so fucking long ago, <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm, I am like, you know, I say I'm recovered, but I made a deal with myself and the deal that I made was I, I drank and used substances for 20 years from about, from about age 12 to about, I think I was nearly 32 when I got into treatment. And so the, my deal was I have to not use for 20 years and then I could make a logical decision of if I wanted to go back because substances are always going to be there. And when I hit that 20 year mark, I said, I think I'll do a few more. And so, but I also felt like I, I was done. I realized it not an issue for me and God knows I have issues. <laughs> I've got all kinds of other issues. So I'm grateful. I don't have to worry about that one anymore. Yeah, I also, as you've heard, I work in the field. Um, I still sponsor people. I still do a lot of volunteer work. Um, I work in a different way these days. I'm I'm a harm reductionist, and you know my book was on combining twelve step and harm reduction. Well, coming to harm reduction, kicking and screaming. So, because that's how I came to it. Um, we have become in our world today more accepting an understanding of what harm reduction actually is and the fact that it's always included abstinence because for some people that's what works is abstinence and if that's complete abstinence i don't actually know what that means how how could anyone be completely absent does that include sugar does that include caffeine mm. <laughs> no. i how far do we want to take this and if it can include if i can call myself abstinent and i can have coffee every morning and sugar every evening, then why can't I take heart medication or something for ADHD? That's actually prescribed. Like <laughs> okay. that doesn't make sense to me. So I do a lot of advocacy around harm reduction and around how 12 step has always been harm reduction in its or origins. Um, I think it's unfortunate that there are too many people out there today that want to determine other people's recoveries. Yeah. You know, I, I was taught you don't do that. You know, somebody is sober when they say they're sober and somebody is a member of a 12-step group and they say they're a member. And that's it. You know? Besides, the only requirement for membership is a, a desire to stop drinking. You know, it was Dr. Bob that wanted, or no, it was Bill, sorry, that wanted to put in um, a sincere desire. <laughs> yes, and it was I Dr. Bob, right, that said, no, 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 <laughs> we're not going to have a police here. <laughs> yeah. Right? So I love that. You know, I love that history. Yeah, I'm a big person on the history of AA. I've read a yeah. lot about it. I think, Good I think for Bill you. W., I've said it before, he's a rock star because before AA, 
there was no self-help group for addicts. Period. Mm -hmm. Dot the end. Mm -hmm. It didn't exist. That's right. So That's he right. started it. Him and Dr. Bob started it. That's right. And, you know, Bill went on to use LSD. Yep. Uh, yeah, and he was that's, to recreate the spiritual experience he had. And he heard that it, people yep. uh, went through spiritual experiences while taking LSD. Right. He also yeah. suffered with really bad depression. Yeah, which, I heard he was bipolar, possibly. He may have been. That's absolutely correct. I mean, we can't know for sure, but it might make sense because he wrote the 12 by 12 in that decade of depression, which explains a lot. If you've read the 12, you know, pretty dark. And think, okay, you know, we kind of get that. And he was searching for another way um, to thumb, to have some additional help because AA was never seen as treatment, first of all, right? It's a self-help group, a mutual. We're here to be in fellowship with one another, to support one another, but not treatment. And he also often said, because he also studied under Carl Jung, and he was good friends with Carl Jung, mm -hmm. and said, you know, go to a therapist or go to a doctor, you know, seek out other people to help support you, whatever you need, because this probably isn't going to be enough. This might be enough for, for your drinking piece. But remember, drinking is only a symptom of a condition, which is another thing he said, which is absolutely correct. Now we understand that trauma plays a big role in it and some other mental health concerns. Um, and we're learning more and more about that, which I think is fascinating. Kind of proves them right. Yeah. So getting towards the end here, did you mm -hmm. have anything else you wanted to add in? I It's a good question. What else would I add in? I think I would only add in that my wish for everybody is that they could have a truly non-judgmental, compassionate place where they could discuss their relationship to substances without any fear that someone's going to judge them, that someone's going to tell them they have to be abstinent for the rest of their life, that someone's going to tell them what to do um, or threaten them, and instead just have real relationships because it's in that relationship that we have with each other, that's where the healing comes in and that's where it grows. Uh, but you can't heal and have judgment in the same room. No, I think you're definitely right on that one. Somebody's, they're going to be more hesitant to accept help if they feel like they're being judged. That's right. That's right. And that's when I was lose, really lucky. That's when you lose people. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I've lost. I can't tell you how many people in 35 years. Yeah. Um, and all of it, every single one of them was for a reason that didn't need to happen. It was because somebody was being judgmental, either in the rooms or out of the rooms. Um, it was because somebody told them not to take their psychiatric medication. Now, um, the young man that I dedicated my book to, Mike, uh, died because of that reason. And very sadly, the old timer that told him he was not clean because he was taking this medication, when he found out that Mike had died from suicide, said, well, at least he died clean. Oh, my God. Now you know why I left 12 Step. That is an absolute that's, that's shame. It. That's enough for me. 
Yeah, no, that would have ended it for me too. That's that's an absolute shame. And I don't mean to lump every 12-step group or every member into the same category. I mean, I had been in the rooms for a good 12, 13, 14 years. So it's not like it was in the beginning of my recovery either. But that that was when I decided that I would find support in other places. And I did. And I continue to. All right. I think that's a great place to wrap it up. I really thank you for coming on the podcast. Today. That was, this has been an awesome interview, I think. How do you feel? Thanks so much, Jim. I feel good. And Izzy wants some treats down here now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, sit tight. For you and Izzy, sit tight for me. Thank uh, you for so everybody... much, Jim. No, no problem. It was an absolute pleasure. <laughs> so for everybody watching and listening, if you like what you heard and saw, go below and give us a like. Also subscribe to see when we upload new videos. You can check us out on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Tumblr. We're pretty much in all social media platforms. You can also check out our website, which is www.addicts-anonymous.com. There you will find plenty of resources as well as free literature. So again, I hope you enjoyed today and until next time.